Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Carrie Blakinger, author of the book, Corrections in Ink, a memoir. Carrie is a staff reporter at The Marshall Project, an online news organization that covers the criminal justice system. In her book, she describes her own experiences with jail and prison, along with how she was able to use her knowledge to become a journalist. We also discuss a number of corrections issues, as well as her everyday life covering the damaging aspects of the United States justice system. Welcome, Carrie Blakinger. Good afternoon, Carrie. Hey. I'm speaking with Carrie Blakinger, and I got that right because I actually went back and listened to your, or rewatched the HBO um, Real Sports interview, which is, it was one of those strange things. Uh, I'd seen some reference to the book right around the same time, and then you were on HBO's Real Sports, and we'll explain the sports part in a second. And they never mentioned the book, so it took me a second to put the two together. But uh, it was sort of strange. I went back and watched it this afternoon, mostly just to refresh memory, because obviously there was quite a bit in there. But it was a little strange that they never mentioned the book, even though the book came out that month. That was disappointing, yes. <laughs> Did you talk about the book during the interviews? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one edit where I could almost believe that's when it was discussed and it, it didn't go out. Well, whatever. I you... actually didn't watch it. Oh, okay. um, I, uh, I, by the time it came out, I was just, uh, I think, so I was on book tour in Boston and I had had just sort of a lot of, you know, dark stuff happened during my time in Boston. I'd been homeless and doing like sex work. And that was a very dark part of my life. And I hadn't been there in like 20 years. So I was walking around and I would see like, you know, alleys where, you know, I'd done like sex work or there'd been like a sexual assault or whatever. I was just seeing all these dark things for the first time in like 20 years. And then I came back and that night is when the HBO thing went live and I started to watch it and I got like two minutes in and I started talking about that part and I'm like I can't I can't do this I can't watch myself talk about it and then um you know after I after that I just um I didn't I've I've 
seen enough of myself talking. It obviously, I could tell from the weather at the time of the interview that it was obviously in the winter or early spring when you did a lot yeah. of that. Because yeah, we did go up to Ithaca in, in like, oh man, that must have been March maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did some of the Houston or the Austin recording in like May or April. So it was nicer in, in Austin, but it was cold when we went to Ithaca. So uh, anyway, but it was a good, I mean, I found it to be a very interesting. And like I say, I, I actually saw that before I read the book or it was around the same time because that's when I put the two together. I said, wait a minute, this is the same person. And um <laughs> And of course, it was with Soledad O'Brien, and she's very good about bringing quote-unquote sports stories that, generally speaking, the sports part is the least important part of it, but they let her continue. And she's been there on that show for years now, and and I always watch it mostly because it's one of the few shows out there that looks at sports as a in a more well-rounded way, which I like a lot about, so... So um, that actually came about because of the producer was the one that found the story. Um, Daniel Litke, he uh, was the one who reached out to me probably a year prior. And I was like, I don't really have time to do that because I was still writing the book at the point that he reached out. And I was like, I should not spend all the time that this would entail when I should be writing a book. Um, And then they eventually ended up with sold that as the person who was going to do the, you know, host or do the interviewing. And, um, she was she was just so nice and very i don't know like mentory like she just kept asking you know she kept giving me advice and sort of asking me other questions um about like how i was handling things between um you know between interview takes so yeah she was she was delightful and she's actually going to be uh interviewing me at the texas tribune festival in the end of september in austin so um i'm i'm happy to see her again she's fabulous well, it helps to get somebody with a hard journalism um, career behind her uh, because journalism is obviously the most important part or, you know, is, is a very important part of your story. I don't want to say most important because that's not completely fair, but it is what you're doing now. So so the book, Corrections in Ink, a memoir, I think you pretty much said what the book's about. It's a memoir. Uh, <laughs> and anybody who reads almost from the beginning of the book catches the fact that you've been writing your entire life. Now, I, I in fact, it was the one thing that I sort of wondered about, we can talk about this right from the beginning, is that you talk about writing journals and other kinds of writing long before even your troubles related to the correction system. So what led you to just become a writer, just a writer writer, not somebody who was writing for any audience other than possibly themselves? Where did that come from when you were, how young were you when you started to write? Just as a day, daily thing. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, as a kid, I think I wrote, you know, I don't know, short stories and I wrote some for the local newspaper. Um, I don't, I don't think growing up that I had any idea I was going to be a writer though. Like I was good at English and I was good at like paper, you know, writing papers and stuff. And my mom was a reading teacher. Um, but I don't think I ever really had any thoughts that I was going to be a, a writer or a journalist. I did, like I said, write some for the local newspaper in high school and I liked that. Um, but it was not clear to me that that would be a career path. 
um, and I don't know, I still, um, I still, I think I still think of myself as more a reporter than a writer, although um, given how people have, have categorized or responded to this book, um, I don't know, maybe I'm more of a writer than I give myself credit for. <laughs> well, I, it's all the same to me. I mean, anybody that can put words on a piece of paper or on a computer screen so that you tell a story or make a point or provide information is great. Well, no, I do think there's a difference, though. I mean, in, in sort of the the way you approach the writing, whether whether you're approaching it as, um, you know, as something that's supposed to be, like, sort of part, part like, beautiful art, like, moving versus... Um, uncovering facts and holding people accountable, you know? And I think that some some of the best investigative journalism um, obviously combines that, and you have these really beautifully written stories that also um, hold people accountable. And I think of, like, Pam Koloff, or, like, there's a lot of writers at Texas Monthly, or Ken Armstrong at ProPublica. Um, but, you know, I think for a lot of people, they, they fall into more the writer category or more the reporter category. Um, and I think I've always thought of myself as being more like a reporter who is, you know, doggedly filing records requests and trying to, you know, find the malfeasance that, you know, government officials are doing. And, um, you know, but given the response to this book, I was like, I don't know, maybe I'm also more of a writer than I give myself credit. <laughs> well, at least you didn't hold back any stories for the book. So that's a good thing. I mean, you're not, uh, that seems to become the normal thing these days with, with memoirs on a national level where, well, we knew, we, I knew this was going on, but I didn't tell anybody until I put it in my book type situation. So that has seemed to become with national writers of memoirs, particularly those who worked for the government um, or other reporters for that matter, unfortunately. So in Corrections and Inc., um, but your main work now, and as you pointed out, when you came out of uh, into back into regular life, um, journalism wasn't something you were thinking about, obviously. It, but it came out of, I mean, in the book, and you do spend a lot of time in the book talking about this part uh, of how journalism suddenly became something that you thought, well, gee, this is something I could possibly do, and. And you turns out you had some pretty good mentors right from the beginning, almost. And how did that? How did you get your initial uh, foot in the door when it came to uh, journalism? So when I got out of prison, um, I was living in the middle of nowhere, and you know I I didn't have a car, and I had sort of no means to um, get to a job, and no real qualifications, and a huge gap in my resume. Um, but I started, I knew that I could write and I started off on Craigslist, just trying to find whatever job listings there were. And, you know, I ended up writing like 500 articles on like locksmithing for some locksmithing site that was trying to maintain a blog. And I wrote like trivia questions for some Korean trivia site. Um, but then there was someone that I used to get high with who reached out to me and said, Hey, my friend is an editor at the local paper and she wants to write a story about people who, about women who had been in the local jail. And would you talk to her? And I said, sure. And so this woman came out and interviewed me. And at the end she said, hey, you know, I Googled some of your stuff. You seem pretty good. Do you want to try writing for us? And I think she must have meant um, work that I'd done for the student newspaper in college before I'd gotten arrested and before I'd gone to prison. 
Um, I think that must have been what she found from Googling. And, you know, I, I said, sure, of course. And so I started covering, um, you know, town board meetings in these small towns outside of Ithaca with like four or 5,000 people. And, you know, they'd be arguing over backyard chicken ordinances and the size of the next salt barn and things like that. And it was, you know, small town and in some ways small stakes, but it was also the first time in a long time that I felt like I was doing something of value to the community because this was after, you know, almost a decade of addiction followed by two years in prison. I got out and started doing this, and this was the first time that I felt like what I was doing was, um, you know, was helpful to the community around me. Yeah, because um, obviously you worked for the Daily News and a number of other places you wrote stories for, but now you're working for the Marshall Project. And that was one of the other things that really came to my attention with this, because the Marshall Project is one of those sites that I follow along with ProPublica and NPR and some of the other things, because frankly, this seems to be where the best journalism is being done these days. These online, these organizations that their whole presence is online. And Marshall Project's best focuses on the criminal justice system. And um, to me, even though I'm lucky and I've never known anybody who actually was part of it, you know, had to deal with it at any detail, I know that there are so many problems with the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, it's one of those topics that people don't want to talk about, especially because as you've pointed out on both in, in Twitter and, and in other ways that you wrote, People have a, when you talk about criminal justice, the average person or many people don't even want to talk about it because as far as they're concerned, people deserve whatever they get, that kind of issue. So um, did you figure pretty much from the beginning that once you did start getting into journalism that you were going to continue to write criminal justice related uh, stories? No, that was actually not at all my intent. I, um, you know, when I... I don't think I really even thought about whether there were reporters who that was their entire job was criminal justice. Like, I don't think I was even aware of that. And I certainly wasn't aware of that there were ways to have covering prisons be most of your job either. But I was not interested necessarily in following that path at first. I think I thought that it would almost be trite or that people would think that I was covering you know, the, oh, of course, the, the felon is covering the felons or that, you know, I was only that was the only thing I could do or would be good at. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think I probably I, I mean, I, I think I probably was also a little worried that um, people would not take it would not take my reporting seriously if I was covering that. Um, so that was not at all my intent. And it, it was something I sort of fell into by accident because the uh, death penalty reporter at the Chronicle retired. So this was like my third job. In that was in Texas, really in went. Houston, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this was like my third job in journalism before I ended up going into a criminal justice focus because I'd started at the Ithaca Times and done a lot of small town community reporting. And then I went to the New York Daily News and was doing, you know, just general assignment, like breaking news, um, dumb listicles, crime, like, you know, all the sorts of things you'd see at. I mean, there's public. crime in New York? Wow. <laughs> Um, and um, and then when I went to the Chronicle about a year after I got there, you know, the Houston Chronicle, the death penalty reporter had retired, and my editor at the time said, "Hey, do you want to um, do you want to you know cover that as part of your 
you know, job. Like you, you know, you have the, you'll still be general assignment and breaking news, but you can do some death penalty stuff on the side. And I said, sure. And then I got into covering that. And from there, sort of it expanded into covering prisons generally, and then covering, you know, juvenile facilities and jails and the intersections of mental health in the criminal justice system. And, you know, it soon became that I was just covering criminal justice broadly. And of course, um, going into the memoir, um, Corrections in Ink, um, you actually sort of put the two together in a sense that you described you going through some of these issues that you now cover. And in fact, right from the beginning, um, the parts that I found the most interesting from the early part was the fact that you had to be educated once you got arrested, that you went into jail not knowing anything about the system, which I understand that. How many people know about the prisons or the jail systems or any of those kind of things until, you know, generally speaking, unless they study it. So right from the beginning, you talk in the memoir about how you had to learn this. And the only people who would teach you, obviously, were the other people who were in the same uh, institution where you were, in this case, jail. And a couple Earlier in the week, I think, on Twitter, you put out a question from people. What are the least understood things about the prison system or about the correction system? Or even, not even sure corrections is the right word, criminal justice system. I like use that because obviously jail has no corrections involved in it to a large extent. Um, so let's talk about that right from the beginning is that one of those things that I'm sure you agree is a misunderstood thing is the concept of jail versus prison. That the jail and the prison are not necess- are not the same thing, except sometimes it can be in, as far as the jail's concerned. But how, f- when did you, how did you start to become aware of the idea that you're in this institution that you're not gonna get out of right now, but you weren't found guilty of anything yet? Um. You know, I don't know if I really sort of thought about that. I mean, I understood that's what was happening, obviously. I knew that, you know, a lot of the women around me were in on probation violations or sometimes small sanctions, you know, and that most of them weren't sentenced. I mean, I knew, I learned very quickly that most of them weren't sentenced because sentenced inmates um, had more, um, you know, they, they could do more jobs potentially in the jail. So, you know, we were very cognizant of who was sentenced and who was not. But I don't think, I think I just so took for granted that this is how the system works, you know, that you will be detained before you're guilty. Um, And, you know, the truth is, I mean, I think a lot of us were not necessarily guilty of the things we were, you know, in jail for. But I think, you know, most of the people that were in there were struggling with addiction and were living lives where they were, you know, committing some crimes. So I think that... Um, I mean, I, I think we sort of all took it for granted that, like, of course, this is just how it works. Um, and, you know, aside from the issues of, of guilt or innocence or, you know, being not yet convicted, um, I mean, there's obviously something to be said about the absurdity of, of just by default putting people in, you know, in prison, in jail for what is fundamentally a mental health issue. You know, you're not going to punish someone into wanting to be sober. So, but then 
part of this issue to me, and this came from, I live currently in a small town area, so of course I recognize the kind of stories you're talking about in the local newspapers. I'm actually from Cleveland, but been down here in Kentucky for a while. And so I do see the stories, but the other big thing that seems to appear in the newspaper every Monday and Thursday, and that's because that's when the the day after the grand juries meet, is the big thing in the paper all the time is the listing of all the people who were indicted on crimes. And it's just a normal story, and it's literally just lists and lists and lists of people who were uh, indicted. And I had actually served on the grand jury down here for a few, one time, one term, which was like three months. And even though I sort of understood this, I don't think I really did until I actually was there and, and watched the system somewhat from the inside where the, the prosecuting attorneys and the police, they all sort of took it as, I don't want to call it a joke, but they certainly didn't take it very seriously. They knew what they were supposed to do. And and what came out of it, to me at least, was how the normal way is to throw as many charges at people as you can to try to get them to plead out and avoid uh, anything related to to, term, to, uh, to trials. And the prosecuting attorney even said the previous three months they hadn't had a single trial uh, where I, in the county where I am. And so everybody pleads out, so to speak, it seems like. So, and in your case, um, and on top of that, bail is one of those issues that um, makes it very difficult because, as you talk about, you're in jail with people who have not yet been convicted of anything, and of course that was you, but they can't get out on bail because of the bail system. I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but I want to give you... Yeah, but in the, in my case, I was not eligible for right. bail. Right, that was one of the um, questions I asked you. Said it in the book that you weren't eligible, and I guess I'm trying to understand how how those kind of decisions are made as to when somebody is even eligible. Just, um, in New York at that time, that was just a function of the level of the crime. Um, I because as a holdover from you know the tougher on crime days in the 90s, um, well, 80s, and to some extent in the 70s, um, New York had uh, certain drug crimes were simply not eligible for bail. And it was, you know, a decent amount of drugs, but it didn't have to be like trafficking amounts. Um, the amount of drugs that I got arrested with, uh, you know, it, it was a decent amount, but it wasn't like kingpin amount. And I was automatically not eligible for bail. And I remember, um, I mean, it's obviously, in the end, that didn't matter because I did enough time that those months I was in counted towards that time. So it just made the whole, you know, I got it over with sooner than if I'd gotten out and been, you know, out on bail. But, um, you know, I remember the absurdity of at one point being in jail and like I was here not even eligible for bail. And there was a guy that had been arrested for child pornography who came in and bailed out within days. And I was just like, is this really the system we're going for here? I mean, are we really saying that like, I'm so much of a public threat that I can't be out, but like, he's less of a public threat. I mean, we were both not yet convicted. um, And, you know, I don't actually know what happened with his case. But um, I remember I remember being struck by the absolute absurdity of that. Now, bail has changed significantly in New York State, and 
the fact that I wasn't eligible was really a remnant of the Rockefeller laws there. Um, yeah, because you even said that had you been arrested even like a certain period of time before you actually were arrested, you would have been in deeper trouble. Didn't you say that there was a law change yes. that saved that yes. basically took a lot of took a lot of the overall term off of your plate? Yes, I um, yes, I I was arrested in 2010, right? But the Rockefeller laws. So, so moving back, the mm-hmm. New York had in I think the 70s or 80s passed the Rockefeller laws, which were some of the first of the very draconian drug war era laws. And they had harsh mandatory minimum sentences for even first time nonviolent drug crimes. And they also um, had three strikes you're outlaws. And other states then followed suit after that, but the Rockefeller laws were sort of the first and I, I think the best known. They started getting repealed in 2004. Um, and then again, in, you know, they finished repealing them in 2009, and I got arrested in 2010. But had I been arrested under the old law, I would have gotten 15 to life. And I would still be in prison and not even eligible for parole for another uh, couple years. Yeah, and of course, we, we saw that continuing into the 90s uh, with laws that were passed. I mean, the tough on crime thing started a lot, you know, continued right into the 90s. It wasn't, I remember the big deal, you know, is that some of the things that the Clinton, that Bill Clinton and his administration did um, continued totally, that whole, yeah. whole, that whole idea of, well, we're going to continue to be tough on crime and... Uh, a lot of these laws, and of course now we're starting to see it as as marijuana becomes more and more legal throughout the country. How do we handle folks who who are now in prison on these long terms for something that is not even illegal anymore? Uh, yeah, and and I mean that'll vary by by state by jurisdiction as to whether um, you know when when laws pass to decriminalize things and to change the lengths of sentences whether these things are retroactive and whether they're automatically retroactive or whether that means that you need to hire a lawyer to raise the issue in court. Um, this is, you know, the answer to that has so far been different in, in different jurisdictions. It, you know, it's not consistent what reform means for people who are currently behind bars. So part of the whole, whole thing that, like I say, continues with a lot of your writing is the conditions in these institutions, both in jail and in prisons. And of course, you've been writing a lot about what's going on in Texas right now, particularly related to the heat issues. And of course, I don't, when you decided to move to Houston, was it because, I mean, that was before you were doing crime, you know, doing criminal justice work. Uh, Was it just a matter, there's a quick joke then on your blog, on your staff writing, um, autobiography that you hate the cold and or was it just something like that that a job showed up in Texas and you said this is something that a move that I wouldn't mind making uh I never envisioned myself in Texas I was at the New York Daily News and at that point um the paper was so unstable that like every Friday if any of the bosses came in in a suit or even looking slightly nice we were like oh who's getting laid off today um and, and actually, I got hired in a group of like 30 people and 20 of them got laid off 
four months in. And at that point, I was like, okay, I need to get out of here. And I also wanted something that gave me a chance to write a little longer and to do more um, on the ground reporting, because a lot of national breaking news is not on the ground reporting. You're, You're writing about you know, some mass shooting that's several states away and you're not there, or you're, you know, you're writing about some disaster or tragedy that you're not actually covering on the ground. You're just sort of aggregating things from reporters who are there. And, you you know, maybe you're calling police departments and things like that. But I, um, I wanted to do actual, like on the ground reporting, and I wanted to be able to write um, longer. And, you know, broadsheets, you know, traditional newspapers seemed like the way to go for that. And when I saw this Hearst Fellowship um, application, I decided to apply for that because that was a two-year program that would get you at two different papers um, a year each. And I ended up getting that and getting placed at Houston for my first year and then just ended up staying. And um, it's been great. I mean, you know, I've, I've obviously moved from the Houston Chronicle to the Marshall Project, but I'm still based in Texas. And I think that, you know, as problematic as Texas is in a lot of ways, it is a great place to be covering criminal justice because I feel like where you want to be is where everything is broken. It's interesting that I saw a couple of months ago that the Marshall Project opened up a, a bureau in Cleveland, which yes. I thought, which, and like I say, since that's my hometown, I found that interesting. So I will continue to be watching what comes out of that particular area because having born and spent most of my years in Cleveland, the Cleveland area, I know that just like other places, the issues there are pretty strong as well. So that will be interesting to see. So you're working still out of Texas. Um, does Marshall Project have people all over the country, or is it mostly in areas like bigger cities and, and areas where most of the obvious issues are? Um, we are kind of all spread out. Uh, we have, you know, we have a few reporters in Texas. We have, um, you know, we have some in Denver. We have one in um, South Carolina. We have someone in Boston. We have a woman in California. Um, so, you know, it's, it's headquartered in New York and I think a larger percentage of the newsroom was in New York city before the pandemic. And now, you know, uh, we've been much more open to hiring people, you know, wherever they live. Right. Well, that's good because I think you're right. That is the best way to handle, especially like I say, if you're an online organization, if what you do is pretty much online, unless it's picked up by somebody, it's where does where you are is more it's more important to be where the story is than having to worry about being in a quote unquote office. So obviously a lot of the once you are in the system and you talk a lot about it in the book um based on and that and a lot of the things you write have come out of those kind of stories about what the conditions are like inside both jail and prisons and between now you were one of the things I think you said in the book is that you weren't involved, you didn't have to deal so much with overcrowding, uh, which often seems to be a big issue with a lot of institutions. The local, the county detention center here um, has had issues over the years with overcrowding, but that's partly because they they are paid to take on state uh, prisoners. And so not only do we have uh, people who are 
just waiting for trial, but now, you know, anything they can make some money on by having state prisoners brought in, they do. And so while not overcrowded, it certainly is a little tight. So you were lucky in the sense that you never really had to deal with that. Am I right about that? Um, sort of. There is one way in which, um, in which that affected where I was doing time. When I was in the county jail, um, whenever there were too many people, they would send the extras to another jail. And that was something that we sort of lived in fear of. We called it boarding out. Um, sometimes they call it outsourcing or, um, you know, being contracted out. But where I was, they called it being boarded out. And we lived in fear of that because it was the women who would disproportionately get boarded out just because there were more cell blocks dedicated to the men. So they were more apt to end up boarding out women. And, you know, if you got boarded out, then, you know, you have to leave all your property behind. You're, you're further from your family. Phone calls are more expensive. You usually have to spend um, three days to two weeks in solitary because they would, like, medically isolate you every time you come to a new facility, even when you just come from a different jail. And, you know, you couldn't necessarily call your lawyer. Um, the rules are all different. Your commissary money doesn't necessarily follow you. It's like all of the things that make jail survivable, you lose and you lose all the people you know. And, you know, you're just, you're starting over again as a new fish, but the also very real, um, you know, the very real benefits of staying in touch with your family and friends and support network from the outside suddenly becomes much harder. And, because that's the one, one of the other things that comes out is how important it is to have people around you, even if you're all inmates, um, as support. And in fact, uh, the HBO interviews, they actually interviewed, I forgot my name, the name has completely gone, but uh, it's somebody you've written about in the book and you've written about since, I forgot her first name now. Stacy. Uh, yeah, that was it. Thank you. Yes. Um, they, they interviewed her as part of the story, and she was somebody who you knew in prison, right? Yes. I, I met Stacy at Albion in 2011, and she was, you know, funny and smart and dynamic and so interested in, you know, I don't know, poking her fingers into the eyes of the system, you know, and um, and I I I. I loved her for it then and you know now she's out and doing some great work um you know around reform and advocating for people on the inside and that's you know part of the reason that she's actually the only person i met in prison who i use their real name because um this is one thing in the course of writing the book i had to make decisions about whose names to change and whose to not and there were a number of people that were like no no, no it's okay use my real name but um you know for one i i felt like some people I, I worried didn't really have an, a concept of what that sort of meant. Like they, they didn't have an existing platform. They weren't a public person. So I was worried that, you know, maybe they didn't fully understand what that could mean. Um, but also I felt like a lot of the people I wrote about, there wasn't a, a positive benefit to them for, you know, being named by their real name in this book. But with Stacy, it was clear to me that there could be because she does this sort of work. And, you know, in the, the person she is in the book is very much the sort of person you want to see doing this kind of work. And you can understand why she's such a fierce advocate. So let's get back into the writing part, because um, 
one of the things that comes through the book regularly is this whole idea of not only writing things down, but saving it and making sure you don't lose the material you wrote. Talk, could you talk a little bit about that whole process? Because obviously the book is built around a lot of those things that you wrote down, especially in the first part of the book before you were actually, before you got out. Um, what was the big, what happens when it comes typically to people's belongings, including things like writings? You know, any of your belongings in jail and prison are always subject to possible confiscation. You can, you know, have your cell searched at any time. Things can just be taken or they can just sort of throw them around and tear them up and destroy them for no reason. So anything that you have, you need to be prepared to lose. And you also need to be prepared for the possibility that it could be used against you at any time. And so, you know, you had to be careful about what you were writing and, you know, sometimes write things obliquely or in code. And, you know, for my part, I mean, I, I would send pages, you know, every few days when I was keeping a journal, I would send pages to people on the outside for safekeeping. Um, so I, by the time I got out, I had a large stack like of legal pads that was my journal for my time on the inside. But I mean, that would not have been, that would not have been safe to be sitting around with all that in my cell. So it only worked because I had people on the outside to send it to. So obviously it must've gone through because somehow it didn't show up. I mean, they, they let the material go out. I mean, we get these. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, where I was in New York, they weren't reading outgoing mail. Now, there are some states that do read outgoing mail, um, and then they wouldn't have blocked it. I mean, I wasn't, like, you know, I I wasn't dumb enough to write down things that would have been things they would not have allowed to be mailed out. But, um, you know, some of them were just things that, I mean, I I wouldn't have, you know, descriptions of the guards, things I just wouldn't want used um, against me. but fortunately, I was in a place where I knew that outgoing mail was not going to actually be read or censored. That part, at least, was good. Um, so one of my questions that I have now that you're writing about criminal justice and whether people have, you know, you even mentioned it earlier about the idea of, of course, that's what this person's going to be reporting on. Um, what kind of things do you say to if somebody has ever asked you about how you can be objective in what you write or whether you should even be objective in how you write? Um, You know, I don't actually get asked that as much as I think I might have expected that I would. I think it's like, I mean, I don't know. You you don't ask a woman how they can be objective about writing about women, you know? Oh, really? Um, I've seen that. (laughs) Not anymore. Not in 2022. I don't see that. Um... I mean, you, you saw, you definitely saw the issue with the Washington Post with Felicia, with Felicia, you know. But other than, other than that, I mean, I, I don't think that I've actually had seen people say that women shouldn't write about women's issues. Um, and we still but, see it about racial issues sometimes. So, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it, I think those are questions that are getting asked less, though. Right. Regardless, um, and. It was never asked by editors or people in charge. Um, I did have one prison spokesman who used to regularly remind me that if I were doing this job 10 years ago, I would never be allowed to cover this beat. And if I did, that I would, I would have to put a disclaimer at the bottom saying that I'd done time. Um, 
I'm surprised, honestly, that it hasn't been something that I've been asked more frequently. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't. I think that's because, in part, because I've, um, I've made such a concerted effort to, to always get like, um, to always get both sides and to be fair about it. Um, I don't think everything is a both sides issue, right. to be clear. But there are, I do think that I need to talk to both sides in the issues that I am covering. If I am writing about prisons, I need to talk to the staff and I need to talk to the prisoners and I need to talk to the administration, you know. And I think that a willingness to write stories that reflect the staff's problems and their needs, um, you know, has has been helpful in terms of people seeing that I'm not just biased because of my, you know, my own past. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just really hasn't come up that much. Well, that's good. Yeah, I'm always bugged whenever I hear somebody say, you have to listen to both sides of a story. And I said, well, if one side is that the world is flat, the discussion's over. I'm not going to get into a discussion, listen to somebody explain to me how the world is flat. It's just not worth my trouble. So to me, some stories yeah. don't have two sides and some have five sides. So it's... It, well, no, I think every story has two sides. It's just sometimes one side is lying. Right. Well, I was going to say, okay to you know, it's okay to reflect that. I mean, I think if there's two sides saying things like, um, you need to acknowledge that there's this other side, but if they're lying, then that is the framing, you know? So one of the things, and in, in we're starting to run long, or not long, but we want to, we want to make sure there's a few things I wanted to talk about, but lighter, hopefully. And mm -hmm. the first is something that when we first when I first emailed you to to possibly make an a, a, an interview, do an interview, is that I said that most of what I interview are film uh, book writers, because um, that's the new books and film. But the good thing is, is where I'm work, where I do my podcasts, we can pretty much choose any book we want if it just jumps out at us, provided somebody else hasn't already chosen it. So, um, so, so I have done a number of interviews that aren't really film related but in this case we do have there is a, a a thing related to movies and your life that i that you mentioned and i really like to to talk about it a little bit um and you specifically talked about alfred hitchcock so <laughs> and i have done a number of interviews with authors who have written books about hitchcock and his films in fact i've got one schedule or we're working on the schedule now so it's not an old uh, a new story for me but what was it about films and in particular Hitchcock that I'm not sure what word I want to use assisted you helped you grounded you at least so a little bit or just I, let you get away I think that's what it was I think it was let me get away so I got into um old movies mostly I mean I, I particularly love noir and I particularly like Hitchcock, I understand by, you know, modern standards, there's a number of ways in which his films are problematic. But um, I was detoxing on my own from heroin in someone else's house. This is when I was about to move from New Jersey to Ithaca. I was transferring to Cornell. I was hoping I was, you know, maybe this was going to be the thing that would help me get my life together. So I was just detoxing on my own before moving. And I was like just miserable on the couch watching TV. And 
I started watching Turner Classic Movie because there's no commercials. Right. So there was nothing to... And they show a lot of Hitchcock. (laughs) Yeah, and there's nothing to, like, distract me from... Like, there there was nothing to take me out of the movie because there was no commercials like that. And I really liked, I think, in that moment that there was... All the problems I had in my life were not going to be reflected in a 1940s movie. Like, you're not going to see, like, a whole bunch of druggies. You're not going to see, like... I don't know, all the sort of like dark things that I had been living through. Like those might come up in any random current movie, but they're very unlikely to come up in a movie from like the 40s or 50s. Um, well, there was The Man with the Golden Arm, but I don't remember when that came out. So, it's, but you're I right. That, I think that was later, but I mean, generally, right. like the, these are not going to have, um, you know, the only thing those movies do make me want a cigarette, right? right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. But, that's, um, you know, so I started watching it. I started watching those then, and and just really um, fell in love with with old movies. And I obviously ended up liking Notorious in particular. That's mm-hmm. that's <laughs> that one resonated. Um, but I ended up then when I was at Cornell taking a lot of film classes, um, and I. I, I don't know that I specified this in there, but I ended up take a lot of the English classes I took were ones that were dual listed in the film department. Mm-hmm. So I took a number of classes on on Hitchcock, and um, th- that sort of became like those became like my comfort movies, you know. Well, that makes sense. You, like I say, that we all have our. Uh... I don't want to call them guilty pleasures because there's nothing to be guilty about with them. There's plenty of people who have, and then like I say, I've interviewed a number of authors who've written books about films that show up on Turner Classic movies all the time. I recently did one about the best years of our lives. There are so many great films that nicely, you know, I always worried because all the other cable channels that were showing films like Sundance and IFC have started to, you know, have gone to commercials now. But TCM has has not done it, and it's one of those things that we should be very thankful for, especially now that it's under um, a different company. We'll have to wait and see what happens. But uh, I always tell people TCM is a treasure, and 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 just the idea of being able to watch these uncut and without commercials and with commentary too, with the idea that you get interviews and introductions to learn more about the films. So that was it's good that uh, that was there. I assume you do you have time to even watch movies these days. Um, I have not. And I mean, I did during the pandemic a lot. The people that I stayed with for much of the pandemic, you know, we started doing like regular movie nights and we went through a lot of old films and, you know, rewatched some that I'd seen before. Um, so that was delightful. And that was also a point at which, because I was writing the book, I was trying not to read other books. So I was spending my free time, like watching movies. Uh, now that that book is done and I'm in the place of deciding whether I want to try to write a second book, I'm very much um, back into spending my free time reading instead of watching movies. Then the other thing I wanted to ask about, and this is something that goes through the book, and it has a happy ending, actually, is your relationship with pets. And I know that's a, a sort of an unusual thing to bring up, but it's one of those things that jumps out of the book with me is that, and like I say, that's the thing about memoirs. You're looking for, when you read a memoir, you're trying to get a sense of the person. And sometimes it's the smallest things that gives you a good sense of that person. And you have the story that runs through the book about your dog that disappeared on the day you were arrested and you actually reunited with that dog after you got out of uh, out of prison. 
Um, do you still have relationships with pets? I know that's a strange question, but I wanted to know. Uh, yeah, other people's pets. I, after yeah, after my dog died, um, I was in Texas already by that point, and I was, you know, I was doing the on the ground reporting that I'd wanted to, and I realized that it was really hard as a single person to have a dog when I could go to the office and there could be a disaster and I maybe don't come home for five days. Mm -hmm. You know, like when Hurricane Harvey hit, I went to a press conference and came back nine days later. And I had been debating whether to get another animal at that point, but I was like, I, I can't, I can't, you know, care for an animal. Um, and so now I'm, I'm lucky enough that I have some friends that have dogs that I can go running with and that I can spend time with. But um, I, you know, currently am not in a place where I can have a dog. Not to mention, it is very challenging to find a rental with a felony and a dog. <laughs> That's, yeah, well, uh, but... Okay, let's come back that to, to that last thing you mentioned is that your future writing. Obviously, a Marshall Project takes your most of your time, if not almost all of it. I know when we tried to set this up, it took us literally, I forgot how far ago since I sent the original email, and it took us over a month, if not longer. So I knew you were busy not only with doing publicity for the book, but then your quote-unquote regular job. Yeah. Uh, what... I mean, you're thinking about possibly writing more bo another book. Do you have a sense as to what you even want to do at this point with the other book? Or is that one of the reasons you haven't made a decision yet as to whether you're going to write another book or not? Um, I mean, I'm playing around with some ideas. Um, I have um, one sort of long-form narrative that could be a book. I've also been thinking about essays. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's very early, um, you know, I just sort of got through all of the big um, push of publicity for this book. And, you know, I'm just getting to the tail end of like all of these sort of like interviews and book talks and stuff. And obviously some of that will pick up again when you, know, when universities are back in school in September and October. But, you know, for now I have finally a little bit of a lull to think about, um, you know, if there's anything that I have now that makes for a good second book, or if this is something I need to just sort of, um, sit on and think about for a little longer. So how do you, I know this is probably an obvious question, but one of the things you point out a lot is that you've gotten a lot of mail from people who were incarcerated who have read your book. First off, are you glad that they've actually been able to get a hold of the book and read it? I would think that that might be something that would be, I know we talked about that earlier, but are they, how many I mean, I'm assuming there have been situations where people can't get a hold of your book in prison, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Or is, uh, you've talked about that in the in some other interviews. So, what does it mean to you when people who are in uh, talk about what they got out of your book? Um, so, first of all, to address the first thing about people getting the book, um, so far I'm not aware of any prison systems banning it, which is honestly a little surprising. I thought that for sure at least New York prisons would ban it because, you know, so much of it takes place in New York prisons. Um, but they have not as of yet. Um, so there's that. But uh, there are many states where people can't get it because it's currently only out in hardback and it doesn't come out in softback until June. And at that point, then there's a whole bunch of other states that I can start having it sent to. Like for now, I've had, I've been, you know, crowdfunding to try to get people to, you know, to try to get paid uh, to get, copies of the book that I can send to people in prisons. And 
through that, I've been able to send copies to prisoners in New York and in federal prisons and in Texas and Colorado and a few other states that allow hardbacks. But some of the large states that don't allow hardbacks are Florida, California, and Michigan. So those will not, the people there will not be um, getting those books until June. And, you know, I won't know if those states are going to ban them until next year. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's been the states where people have gotten it. I mean, it's been great to be getting to be getting feedback um, in some cases from people that I've been corresponding with for years or writing about and who knew that I'd done time, but maybe didn't know all the details and the contours of it. And it's also been great to hear from people that I haven't you know spoken to in a long time, some people that I did time with or that you know I met when I was teaching classes in the in the county jail when I was teaching writing classes in the county jail. And, you know, to hear their um, reactions to it, there was one woman who told me that she found it so validating to hear someone having some of the, some of these very similar reactions to incarceration and to the, specifically to, you know, people in places in the New York prison system. And that was such a neat response because out of all the things I thought this book would do, I didn't really think about it as being validating for people. And so that was, that was neat. Yeah, I think memoirs, this is another thing about memoirs and why I'm generally a fan of them is that very seldom will you read a memoir, and I mean, obviously you have some choice about what memoir you read, that you won't necessarily see something that makes logical sense or seems familiar, even if you've never been in that situation. I mean, something as, as obvious as some of the things you talked about, both with your dog and other things like that. Those all things that I would see that I saw as being, yeah, that's something I could see would be very important to me, something you hang on to. And and, and so I think that it, it, it's great that that's the reaction you've gotten. Um, what about, Have you gotten any reactions from um, other than people who work in the uh, correction system? Have you gotten heard from anybody in, about it or not? I mean, yeah, I've gotten a broad range of responses from people who, um, you know, who, who work in prisons and people who have no connections to criminal justice. I mean, generally, the people that are bothering to reach out to me are reaching out because it's something positive. I have not yet had anyone randomly send me hate mail about the book. I mean, I get tons of other hate mail, but I haven't actually gotten any hate mail about the book. Um, or maybe that's not true. There was one person that that wrote me something, I forget what it was. I think I screenshotted it and tweeted it. Yeah, but, you did. Um, there yeah. was at least one that I remember. Well, I've also I've also tweeted some um, like Amazon and Goodreads reviews that were kind of wild. Um, like there was yeah, there one... was some, there was, I was looking on Amazon just before we started talking and there's at least one person who gave it a one star, but they didn't give a writer review. So the best we know is at least one person gave it a one star. Yeah. So, and then one person uh, said great things about it, but only gave it three stars. So, but other than that. Uh, well, on Goodreads, like there was somebody that said that it felt a little bit like a travelogue. And I was like, what <laughs> like I was like did you read the same book like also where do you travel like do you need better travel say, plans right? I have no particular interest in going to Ithaca so I mean you know <laughs> like a prison travelogue like mm. I was that one was just kind of wild but um you know I I think that one of the frustrating responses has been there I saw that there's a few people that said that I didn't adequately explain how I, why I became addicted to heroin. And I was just kind of like, I mean, I explained for like literally 336 pages. 
Yeah. But um, I think when people say that, uh, I think it gets at something that people ask me frequently because I get asked a lot, like, if you could do one thing different, you know, to not become, you know, to not end up where you did, like, what would you do? And that's just not a reasonable question because what you're getting at when you ask that is like, what is the one thing I can do or my loved one can do to not end up where you ended up? Mm-hmm. And I don't have a silver bullet to solve addiction, you know? And when people say that I didn't explain it adequately, when, I mean, frankly, I, I did at length, I think what they're getting at is that they, they didn't come away with it with a single solution to addiction, right. you know? the answers are there you just didn't like them because they were complicated yeah i teach history among other things that i do and one of the things i hate the most are alternate histories they're a waste of time as far as i'm concerned because they're not going to happen you have no way of knowing and to me except for if they somehow bring out a greater understanding of what the original event was so but uh yeah a question like that i would i could agree would be pretty useless because you know, but yes, the whole book is pretty clear uh, what led to um, some of the issues that you had at your entire life to a large extent, at least up till that point. So um, anyway, I know we're we're at time. So I just like to take a moment to thank you. Um, obviously, you're a heavy Twitter person. Uh, <laughs> where else can is there other places besides the Marshall Project, which is the most important part? of what you, you know, important in the sense of, of your, what you do for a living, but also the information and the material that's done by them. Um, if people don't know they're nonprofit and they certainly are, are of, you know, if you go to the marshallproject.org, you have the ability to um, even donate and also subscribe to newsletters and such from there. So there's plenty of information about these topics and others. Um, what else can people, is there other places people can follow you or is it pretty much Twitter? I'm on TikTok. TikTok, okay. Yeah, I do a lot of TikToks about, um, mostly about prisons, um, some about death penalty, some about my own prison experience. So, yeah. Yeah, it, that's actually good because the video aspect of it makes uh, it a little bit easier for you to express because, you know, you're not stuck to the 200 or however many characters were allowed on on um, Twitter these days. So, But anyway, thank you for your time. I appreciate that we were finally able to talk. Uh, I hope now that you're at the end of uh, the initial period that you'll get a chance to sort of reflect on what these last few months have been like and where it might lead you as far as either further writing or or what you're already been doing and 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 so I'm I'm glad we got a chance to talk and and I hope you continue to do good work and that it definitely is good work. Thank you. My thanks to Carrie for finding time in her busy schedule. I hope you will continue to follow her writing on the Marshall Project. This is Joel Cherney on the New Books Network. <laughs>